Access to education is something everyone strives for, but not all achieve, especially education that leads to meaningful and well-paying work. In today's world where software is eating all sorts of industries, access to a good technical education is still out of the reach of many people. Laboratoria is a social enterprise which teaches women from low-income backgrounds in Peru, Mexico, and Chile how to code and helps place them in coding jobs. It was started in Peru by a couple Mariana Costa, who is the CEO, and Herman Marin, who is the CTO, along with a friend after they found it difficult to hire developers for a web agency that they had started. In today's episode, Mariana talks to Carl Mungazi about how Laboratoria is using software engineering to change the lives of the women in Latin America, whilst also meeting a demand for good technical talent. She discusses the challenges faced by her students, who sometimes spend hours traveling to the school, and her plans for training 10,000 developers over the next five years. So, Mariana, you are the CEO of Laboratoria. Welcome to SE Daily. Thank you very much for the invitation. So, I think as a starting point, can you just give us a, a brief background as to what Laboratoria does and what it is? Yes, we are a social enterprise that trains young women from low-income backgrounds to become awesome software developers. And then we connect them with employment opportunities in the tech sector. And we basically are focused in Latin America right now. So we have four training centers and we're opening a fifth one this year across the region. So your website states that you look for talent where no one else is looking. Which areas in Peru, Chile and Mexico are people not looking for programmers who are talented? Yeah, I think that, I mean, unfortunately, it's 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 not only a matter of, a matter of areas. Uh, it, it's often a matter of, of socioeconomic income, you know, and, 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 and background. And what happens in Latin America is that we have this large number of, of youth that cannot afford quality higher education and hence often end up doing just low-skilled work or in the case of women, it's often just domestic work without the opportunity of, of even discovering their talent and potential. No? So that's our niche. We focus in, in, in young women who haven't been able to afford quality higher education and, and have a lot of potential but really haven't had the opportunity to discover that and do something with it. Okay, so before you existed and your company existed, how were women from low-income backgrounds able to learn how to code, if at all? Ah, oh, man, I mean, it's, 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 it's actually tough. I think that before we existed, um, there's often women that go on to study computer, computer and informatics, it's usually called. Uh, but okay. it tends to happen that, that it's in places of, of, of relative, relatively poor quality. So we actually have many students that have been through some sort of education in, in, in a technical context, but they really didn't learn the things that they needed to then be able to work. Um, and I think that's a major change. It, it's actually giving them the skill sets that they need to become employable and to be able to add value in a company, you know? On the one side and on the other side, I think uh, there's also an issue of the branding of what it means to be a programmer. And, and in Latin America, until recently, that definitely meant being a guy and a particular type of guy too, no? So I think we're, we're really trying to change that and show that 
Uh, I mean, software development is an awesome career for women too, with endless opportunities. Okay, so since you started, how many years ago was that now? We've graduated over 450 developers mm-hmm. and we currently have um, like 200 of them on training. So in May this year, you partnered with Google as part of International Women's Day and you did a study of the tech labor market. And um, what things did you find in your study? Yeah, so we partnered with Google on a very exciting project to grow Laboratoria, but also to diversify the career tracks that we offer. So right now we offer front-end web development, and with Google we want to go beyond that and, and start teaching other things. So this market study was part of getting to understand where should we focus no there's a bunch of of different tracks that we could follow within the world of of software development and it was actually pretty useful i mean i I think that the first thing that's very clear is that there's massive unmet demand you know this is a market that's growing fast software developer uh, will become the fastest growing career in the next decade there's already a, a very significant gap almost half a million people in IT overall by, by next year in Latin America. So it's a very significant gap. And and the region needs this type of talent to be able to grow its digital economy and really transition towards uh, knowledge economies. And so okay. that, that was one key thing. So I think we're, 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 we are currently in a very sweet spot. And then we also had more information about what, are, what do companies want, you know, and, and, and realize that, Many of the areas that we're pursuing already fit with that. So, for example, UX design is it's a career that has significant demand. Backend development, I think mobile development is also coming and starting to grow in the region and, and so on. So, um, since you started and, and the work you've done, um, how has the landscape changed for women entering tech as a result of your work? I actually feel very proud. I think it, it has changed significantly. I mean... I started this because a few years ago, I actually started a software company first. And it was very hard to recruit software developers for my own team. And it was almost impossible to recruit women. You know, it became the typical team of all guys. And I would take part in different events and conferences and meetups. And often, uh, I mean, there was no more than one or two women there. And, and today in the cities where we are playing a role, Thing that's starting to change gradually you know every meetup that you'll go every hackathon that you'll go you will often get uh, graduates or students from laboratoria and they're already making an impact there but more important they're really becoming this this inspiration for so many more women and we increasingly see that we have more and more applicants to our program who now actually dream of becoming developers. You know, they've, they've read the stories, they've met our graduates, and they see that they're doing really great and that they're taking advantage of all the opportunities in the sector and, and now truly believe that they can actually also have a career and, and become part of the leadership of, of the tech industry. Yeah. So um, on that point, I, I read that your first ever call for full-time applicants received over 2,500 applic- applications. How did you choose your first cohort? I mean, the number of applicants has grown cohort, cohort by cohort. And, and I mean, in the most recent ones, it's usually where we get the most applicants. But that, that continuous increase has been crucial to be able to, to develop a selection process 
that enable us to enables us to identify potential over prior experience. You know, we don't require any sort of experience in tech per se, but we do look for things that can that can suggest that these candidates will become good developers and eventually transition to jobs in the sector. And I think that there's there's two sides to that. There's on the one side uh, certain cognitive skills that are important uh, around logic and math basically because because we're teaching programming so that's an important base to have and then on the other hand maybe even more important are the soft skills and the the life skills so we look for things like perseverance and and resilience and commitment you know and certain level of emotional maturity that that show us that these are women that can actually persevere you know and stick to the end given that it's it's not an easy task at all okay so what does the profile of a typical student look like at Laboratoria? Yeah, so our, our typical student is, a, say, a 24-year-old girl who basically graduated high school, maybe spent a year trying to figure out what to do, helping at home, then went on to try to start some sort of higher education. But after a year, had to drop out because there was some sort of economic difficulty in the family, like a parent losing a job or, or illness, and, and then went on to, to work in the hopes of saving money to be able to go back to school. No? So work, it, it, it's really diverse. We have a, a bunch of students that have worked like in supermarkets or in call centers or in these more like mom and pop shops, you know, informal shops. Uh, related to a family business but but I think that the common denominator is that they are eagerly looking for an opportunity to build a better lives not only for themselves but also for their communities and and they have the drive and the talent really to to as soon as they're given an opportunity take advantage of it to to really grow yeah I mean one thing that really impressed me and kind of um when, when I was reading about laboratory was that the kind of things your students had to do to get to where they were. So, for example, on your website, you state that the adversity faced by your students makes them more stronger and more committed. So, in that context, how does overcoming adversity translate into success in learning how to program? Yeah, I mean, that's that's always it's very humbling. I think that when you get to know the story of your students and all they do to, to really take a, take the most advantage of their time with us. It's it's pretty amazing. I, I mean, just to begin with, the, the commute is endless, you know, in, in a city like Lima that has very poor public transportation. Uh, someone that lives in the outskirts takes two and a half hours each way. So you're talking about like a, a long time, not, not in a nice subway, you know, they're changing like four different types of public transportation each one worse than the, than the previous one. So it's it's not easy. And, and many of them also deal with personal circumstances that are challenging. And I mean, it's it's really inspiring to see the strength that they, the strength that they bring, you know, and how laboratory is a place where they, they also, we push them to believe in themselves and to be certain that despite that they haven't had the opportunity, they have everything they need to get to wherever they want. And, and, coding is the skill that will get them there so once they realize that i think that men i mean they're ready to go and, and and one great thing about actually teaching coding and not teaching something else is that 
learning to program, it, it's a very empowering skill, you know? Really soon after they start, they're able to build something and show that to the world. Eh? Something that looked like complete Chinese before starting. So this in itself, I think it really becomes empowering for them to to engage and to continue growing. Yeah, and I think you kind of um, spoke about it then, but I um, get the sense that you have a really strong pastoral emphasis built into curriculum. For example, you teach your students how to handle their finances, how to handle how to handle being in work, and you also provide um, psychologists. So why do you do all these things as well as teaching them how to code? Yeah, we do all these things because, I mean, these are the most important things in the end to be able to not only get, but sustain a job at a demanding place and, and to basically escape poverty and build a better life. I think th- this soft part is, is the most important one in the end. And our students, uh, many of them haven't worked in the formal sector. None of them has worked in tech. So the transition from before laboratory and what they were doing there to their first job, is it's a pretty hard one. So we need to make sure that we equip them not only with the technical skills, but also with, with, with all these other life skills that are crucial for them to be able to say, you know what, I can do it. I can deal with this transition. I, I've learned how to communicate. I've learned how to manage change, how to adapt how to take care of these new resources that I'm having, how to think long-term. And, and it's honestly the most challenging part too. I think it's way easier to teach someone how to code than to build all, all these other skills that are around it. What kind of things have you, have you come across which were a particular challenge to you in terms of maybe your students came to you and they had some past issues that maybe affected how they were able to learn how to code? Yeah, I think one of the one of the the most important uh, challenges, and and I think it's one of the things that we've learned to do really well. It's one of the things that I'm I'm most proud of is building this confidence because it often happens that our students have been through yeah difficult circumstances and had one, two, three, and more doors closed upon them because of lack of opportunity. So they get they get to a point where they no longer feel think it's possible and. They often share their stories and say that when they applied, you know, someone had to push them and they didn't think they would make it. And they then realized that they're, they're perfectly capable, they're bright. But that's, I think, a number one thing that they need to overcome to become good developers. So we, we really work a lot around that. And I think we have a, a good approach. If you talk to them the first day of classes and you talk to them graduation day or maybe a few months after they're working, in many ways, they've, they've grown. I mean, it's, it's very impressive. I think they are very surprised about the change that they undergo. So is this um, work that you do partly why you also try and involve the parents and the family in, into the actual education process as well? Yeah, that's, that's a huge learning that we had early on because, I mean, parents and families can often be the factor that drags them down. And, and we realized that we were doing all this. It's a huge change in how they see life. If it was only us pushing for that and the family was pushing the other way, they were going to be torn and it was going to be difficult. And it was one of the reasons for dropout rates and so on. So now we try to engage the family along the way. And, and I think it's very helpful so that they understand the type of commitment that the program entails. 
and and they they commit to support them if if they don't have family support it's it's going to be very hard for them to stick to the program in societies like the ones we have in Latin America where family is like such an important part of life so it's not a personal decision in the end it ends up being a family decision and and I often see and I really want to measure this because this is more like my experience but I I would really want to try and see if there's a correlation I mean, strong students often have someone in their family that believes in them too. You know, they have a mother that's there saying, you know what, this is your opportunity, go for it, I'll take care of the house, you focus in this. Or they have like a sister or they have someone that's cheering for them to stick to the program and get all the way to the end. So once the students are settled, ready to start learning, what kind of topics are on your curriculum and what are they learning and how do you decide what to teach them? Yeah, so our core curriculum right now is in JavaScript. Um, so they basically graduate as, as front-end JavaScript developers. And I think that it, this is a, it, it's a programming language that we chose basically because there's a lot of demand for it. We do try to teach them just programming logic overall, you know, so that they can actually then go out and be able to learn other stuff. And if they go out to, 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 some, to a job where JavaScript is not the, the main language used, they have the ability to learn other things and adapt. So that's, I think, an important paradigm. But, but all the course runs through JavaScript. And of course, they also see HTML and CSS and responsive design and, and things like that that complement that skill set. And, and, and I then mean, how as... are you... Oh, sorry. No, I was just saying in, in terms of deciding, we have a really close relationship with companies, you know, with the market. Companies of all sizes and colors interested in hiring developers. And, and we coordinate with them a lot and we invite them to our events and we send out our curriculum for review. So we really try and make sure that it's, it's very close related to what the market needs. And um, how are you assessing the success of your methods? How are you able to gauge whether or not you maybe have to tweak something or change a topic to suit the students and to help them learn more and become more employable? Yeah, this is a, a very important question. I think it's one of the things that we've tried to stress as an organization. First, in the classroom, we have a, a very short feedback loop. We teach through a methodology we, where there's learning sprints that are usually two weeks long. After a learning sprint, there's a retrospective where students reflect about their learning process, what they could do better, the best practices. And teachers and the team also reflects on the content, you know, and based on, on how students did and, and their feedback, what can we do better? So that's one element that, that takes place constantly. But then the other crucial part of it is, is our success rates, right? So we basically... At the end of every every bootcamp, we provide students with a recommendation for employment. Uh, and for this, we have certain levels that they need to attain. So um, we strive to give at least 90% of the class a recommendation for employment. That means they're ready to work. So that's an important metric for us. And then we go on and try to connect those students with employment opportunities and we measure what percentage of them actually got a job, you know, and, and that's another crucial metric because in the end, if they managed to get, to get a job, that, that shows that they were able to learn the skill. And then as a third level, we, we, we measure how they sustain that job and grow in that job, which shows you that they not only managed to get a one-time gig, but they've become employable and are, are on track for a career in the sector. Okay, so on that point of being employable, 
when you first had your your first batch of students who graduated and you went to companies and said, you know, we have these students who are developers, they, we've taught them. What was the response like from industry when you had that first batch of students ready to enter the market? Yeah, man, those, those, those were pretty crazy times. I mean, I think that there was a lot of surprise for what we were doing. It was, it was pretty innovative at the time, you know, and, and companies, agencies, startups were like, wow, this is cool, you know? These young girls, they're developers, they come from a different background than, than the rest of my team maybe comes. And I think there was a lot of openness uh, at a first level. And, and that was great, you know, people connected with our brand and they loved the idea. Then once we went and actually tried to play students, I think we, we had our, our early adopters, you know, that were people that said, I love this. I don't mind that they're still very junior. And back then the level was always way less advanced than it's today. So they were like, I don't mind. I, I love this, you know. And there was then there was also people that were way more cautious, you know, like, oh, you know, how do I know that they're good developers if they don't have the degree and so on. So our focus has been to show through through a lot of data their level you know and to be able to be as transparent as we can with companies and we're even moving into into the space of trying to compare our graduates with graduates from other places to show their technical level is very competitive so on that part on, on that point about comparisons are there any differences between how laboratoria is teaching coding and how it is taught in the schools where you operate because you operate in Peru, Chile and Mexico. So what are the differences in terms of what you teach and what has been taught in schools there? Yes, I think there are many differences. Uh, I mean, first, if you com- if we compare Laboratoria with other, the, the most common uh, alternative, which is still a technical institute, you know, it's, it's not yet a bootcamp because bootcamps are not that widespread yet in Latin America. If you compare it with a technical institute, it often happens that their curriculum tends to be outdated. You know, they, they lack the speed to be able to change as fast as we do. So I think that's one key element. But then if you go and compare what and how we teach with other boot camps, I think that in the how, there's probably not much difference. In the, sorry, in the why. But in the how, there's a wide difference. So we, we I think we've developed a a teaching methodology, you know, and we focus, focus not only in what, but really how do we make sure that these students are learning something that's complex in a limited amount of time. And we've developed the, the Agile Classroom methodology that came out actually of a reflection on how to teach them Agile culture. And then we said, why don't we actually make the whole classroom Agile? And I think that the way that that works is amazing for student engagement, you know, so they're like super, super engaged and that is able to drive learning forward. And and I mean, I think the other thing that makes Laboratoria really special and, and if you go to any of our training centers and it, it will be very evident is that we have groups of like 60 women, you know, together, eight hours a day, five hours a week, and that builds just such a strong community that I think is a it's a game changer. And and how key is that community in how the women are developing their skills and, and building networks for future opportunities and whatever really in the future for them? It's it's crucial. I mean I th- I think it's one of the most important things. That community gives them a sense of belonging, gives them a sense of purpose, it gives them support when they're down not only morally, but also technically, you know, they complement each other. 
and they're on this boat together, you know, for the long run. And I think that's that's just such a strong element of, of keeping them there, keeping them together. And as we have more alumni, that's going to become incredibly powerful. You know, we want to train over 10,000 developers in the next couple of years. So th that's going to mean having a network of developers across Latin America, probably even across the U.S. or elsewhere, that share that same laboratoria heart, you know, it's like it's a very strong movement that they belong to. Yeah, and I was actually, in fact, going to come to that point of your ambitions for the future because I read an article in Bloomberg which said that the money you, you received from the Inter-American Development Bank was, was, was around 900,000 US dollars last year or, or 2015, and that was with training for training 10,000 coders in the next um, five years. Now, how are you going to go about doing that? Because that's a big number to train in. What kind of things are you going to put in place to ensure that you hit that target? Yeah, I mean, just to clarify, no, it's the, the grant from the IDV goes to a little part of that, but that obviously ambitious okay. is, implies many, many more, more partners, no? So how are we going to do that? Basically, I think, uh, number one, we are actually building the organizational structure to be able to support that growth. You know? So we have a, a central product team that is in charge and focused of building the best products, You know, the best curriculum, taking stuff that's out there too, but tailoring it for our needs, the best technology platform, the best programs overall, and that we have a smooth structure to be able to deploy that to all our training centers uh, in a way that actually makes sense for them and that enables them to, to really attain their goals. Then I think we have a, a pretty strong network, you know, of industry organizations working in, in, in these sectors, social sector organizations, even government. That's a strong pull for us, uh, pushing us to really continue growing laboratory and be able and be able to leverage on that on that local network. So that's another key thing. And then we're also working on building the best team. I think that the best team is, is a crucial part of, of actually being able to accomplish this, this vision that, that I, I think it's doable, but of course it's very ambitious. Okay. I also understand that as part of the drive to increase your numbers of students, you are looking at using things like blended learning in your approach in the classroom. Now, how does that work in the context of what you do? Yeah, I think that that's that's pretty important. One of our of our key goals is to just go from teaching tech to actually becoming ourselves and an a tech company, you know, that leverages on technology to to enhance our operations and our scale. So we're already doing uh, working to to get actually a bunch of our lessons in video. That doesn't mean that the students won't be together physically. I think that's a a very important element to achieve all the life skills part that we bring about, but we really want to build the technology to enable them to learn at their own pace, you know, at their own needs to be able to diversify our curriculum. And technology is crucial for that. And, and with our scaled plans, I think tech is also a key element to ensure consistency. You know, we need the processes, but we also need the technology to facilitate that consistency and ensure that we can be sure that a developer from Buenos Aires has the same level than a developer from Guatemala, you know, and that there's consistency across. So once the students have finished the, the course and you kind of um, spoke to this earlier, what happens to them? Are you able to provide a path where they do an internship 
or are you able to employ them in-house for your agency work? What kind of options are there for them to take? So we basically place them in jobs. We, we have a very wide network of hiring companies and a whole team that's focused in placing our students in the best jobs possible. No? And we now have students working in, I mean, top tier companies like IBM and Fortworks and Everest and, and so on to like the coolest startups to even government and, and large companies. So our, our entire focusing is placing them in the best jobs possible. And we've been, I think, quite successful until now. There's obviously room for improvement, but I think we've done well. As I was saying at the beginning, on average, on our latest cohorts, uh, nearly 80% of them go on to work as developers full-time, you know, and they triple their income as a consequence. So on that point of financing, I've got a couple of things I want to talk to you about on that. And the first one really is... um, the kind of model you have, how are you able to raise the money you need to keep teaching these women and girls to code and also, I guess, pay yourselves? Because I would imagine that you need to also, you know, earn some money on the side to keep yourself going as well as training the students you have. Yeah, of course. I mean, we have a, a we're at 60 people working at Laboratoria and everyone has is paid, you know, as a full time employee. And we try to pay competitive because we, we need great talent so uh, i mean to begin with we have our own means of generating revenue and that's important because we we do aspire to become a a self-sustainable organization in the medium run so our students pay back the program once they graduate and get a job you know and and the the student that follows the path that we we like them to follow you know that actually becomes employable gets the job and grows in, in the job will actually end up paying even more than than what it costs us to train here, no? Uh, We're also uh, charging companies. So for companies to hire talent, they take part in in a series of events that we organize and they pay for that, you know, to be able to access the the pool of talent with, with certain priority. So that's key, but then until we reach our, our break-even, if you want to, we, we have partnerships with organizations that support our, our work because they believe in our cause and our mission. You know, and we, that's why we've partnered with the IDB or with Google.org or investors like Comedia Network that, that really think that the model that Laboratory is bringing about is going to change how we prepare uh, youth from low-income backgrounds for the jobs of the future. Also, so on that, uh, in terms of other sources of revenue, are you looking at maybe expanding your teaching to um, general public or are you, for now, just focused on teaching women how to code mainly before you maybe look at expanding your, your services? Uh, so we've, we've thought about that. For now, we want to continue focusing on our core. I think that's that's one of our strong value propositions. You know, it's women, it's giving them a career in tech, so it's giving them that jump to actually kickstart that career uh, and it's it's pretty unique i think but obviously there's a, a massive opportunity out there no and we, we reflect about if it's worth going out after it uh, one thing that we have started doing is that we are also providing training to a different public but it's through companies that want to hire talent so we do provide training for for hiring companies you know that want to hire talent but do also want to train their staff in in the types of things that that we know so that's another interesting line of of revenue that i think will continue to grow but yeah we need to take it step by step i think i mean the most important thing for us is that 
we are able to to preserve our social mission. So I guess with that work, with that work that you're doing, you have a unique insight into recruitment for tech in Latin America. I mean, when you started, you um had had an issue hiring developers yourself in in, in Peru. Now, has that changed now? Or is it now easier to hire developers if you have a an idea or a startup you want to start? Or is it still quite hard to find the right talent for the jobs that you have? I mean, I think there is still a lot of unmet demand. In part, that's that's the opportunity that we pursue. No, it's, it's, it's still, there's large unmet demand. And there's also, that demand is also quite varied. So I think we are solving a pain when it comes to junior front-end developers. We definitely are because we're graduating over 120 developers per city every year. You know, you, you get to, to access that pool of talent at once. So it's very convenient. But we're just solving one niche right now, you know. So demand for backend developers, it's still soaring and it's hard to find. Demand for mobile developers, demand for people doing UX design or architecture and so on. So I think overall it's still pretty challenging. And that's an opportunity for us, you know. We need to grow to not only scale what we do right now, but also tap onto those needs. And um, are there any other startups, maybe like yourselves or different to yourselves, are trying to also tackle that same issue in um, Latin America? I think there are. There are, and there will probably be more and more, but not in exactly the same way, you know. So you are starting to see more boot camps growing in Latin America, but often they, they don't attend the, the public that we attend, you know. They target a higher income population that just wants a career change. So you do are getting more and more things like that. And I think that our, our approach is to to be the best, you know, in, in preparing people to, to, to actually land these, these jobs in tech, but do so with a social mission, you know, and, and not only bringing in the talent that the sector needs, but making this an opportunity for social transformation in Latin America. Okay. So, I mean, so obviously you are able to get these young women to come to your, to your school and to learn. What happens to students who are not able to make the cuts do you offer any other options for them or are they just kind of left having to try again next year to get into the into the school so i mean we guide them to some other options but we basically provide them with the information no it's not a it's not a tailored program to take them somewhere else because we don't have the capacity to do that but but we do guide them with uh, references to other programs that do similar things to what we do but in in different types of sectors for example no in, in maybe in digitation or or other things and and we obviously also guide them to resources where they can start learning to code online so that they can continue engaged and hopefully apply again so with that how many of your students are able to take their work home and maybe code at home or do more work at home is that something that they can do very easily it depends i mean i would say easily probably around half who actually has a computer an internet or has someone nearby that has a computer and internet but this is in part one of the reasons why the program is is full-time you know and we try to give them the facilities to stay as long as they want, actually, and, and that does happen. Many of them end up staying very late because they want to practice and they can't do it at home. Okay, so I now want to go on to a, um, an exciting thing that happened to you last year. You shared a platform with uh, President Barack Obama, then President and Mark Zuckerberg at the Global 
Entrepreneurship Summit. And um, you were talking about how you started Laboratoria and discussing what you've found and what you've done. And one thing you spoke about was that when you started, being connected to the internet was a challenge for you. Can you expand on this and kind of tell us how it was a challenge and what you did to overcome the challenge? Be, sorry, being connected to the internet, you said? Yeah, that's your that being um, able to be connected to the internet for you was a challenge in the beginning in terms of general connectivity in the region. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think that... Uh, man, I, I, I would have to go back and listen to that again because... <laughs> I mean, connectivity, no, that, I don't know if it, I mean, there's, there's a, there's obviously connectivity is not as great everywhere, you know, and, and, but it's pretty widespread, particularly in urban centers uh, in Latin America. It is very, very widespread. It's, it's also sometimes often very slow, but, but it is there. And that's actually a, a, a thing that, that helps the type of work that we do, you know. Obviously, there are limitations, and we were thinking, we were reflecting about this very recently, and say many of our students have a smartphone, and they spend five hours a, a day commuting. So you would think that they could do a bunch of stuff on their smartphone, you know, maybe download an app to practice, or I don't know, watch YouTube videos. But in the end, it, it, that doesn't happen because they have, they don't have um, any any credit. To actually use the internet when they're not on Wi-Fi, and the smartphones are, are are usually very poor quality, so they don't have a lot of memory. So that does represent certain limitations that elsewhere wouldn't be there. And I guess actually on that point, um, that actually is maybe an a chance for someone to to, to develop a solution which can maybe work in that context. Totally. I mean, we are thinking about it already. You know, how can we develop content? <laughs> That they that that's accessible offline, you know, and that doesn't take that much space, and that how can how can we take advantage of those five hours that they commuting, so that they can learn, you know, a podcast, and and obviously we also need to think about resources in Spanish because many of these things are available in English but not in Spanish, so that's another challenge for us, which is also an opportunity. Okay, so um, what would you say um, from your experience are the challenges of scaling a tech company like yours across Latin America? What kind of things did you come across which maybe slowed you down and maybe meant you were not able to go as fast as you wanted to do? Yeah, I mean, it's very challenging. It's for sure one of the most challenging things things I've, I've done and I'm still in the midst of it, so... I think there are many elements. First, you need to build a great product. You know, that's the number one. And in our case, that means building the best training program for junior developers out there. And how do we make sure that we have the best curriculum, you know, and the best teaching methodology and the best applicants to be able to learn this and we have the correct selection process and so on. Basically, a product that, that our clients, which are the our students and our hiring companies, love. So that's continuous improvement that we're doing. And then scaling up uh, entails also certain or, or limitations in terms of organizational capacity. No, I mean we we we've grown fast, but we also need to be cautious to grow in the right way. And that's also linked to funding. We are uh, in, in the end, we are a program that uses a lot of tech but has a physical element to it so 
that scalability is a bit more challenging because as we grow to new centers, we need new people to, to run those. We're working to make that as, as efficient as it can be, but we will always need new people. So we also need the funding for that. No? But, but again, I think it is challenging, but it's also an amazing opportunity to pursue. And that's a, that's a good thing. Our market is, it's really, it's, it's, I mean, in terms of young women from low-income backgrounds looking for a better opportunity, it's endless. And in terms of job opportunities in tech, it's, it's very, very large. So I think that the pieces are there to make it happen. And how are you able to maintain the essence of what laboratory is whilst you're scaling up across all these countries in in Latin America? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think that's key. You know, I I wouldn't want to scale if we're going to lose that. And that's going to change as we become bigger. But I think that there are certain things that characterize our program, you know, and the people that work here. So I I actually spent a, a significant amount of my time thinking about that and doing things to promote our culture and to make sure that people are aligned and to make sure that people from the different training centers are working together and actually feel part of the same organization. And we have a set of principles, our values that, that, that characterized who we are, you know? So I think that, that that's helping a lot, but it's a continuous challenge. And the bigger we become, the probably the more time we'll have to invest to make sure that we protect that. So would you say then that um, there are differences you faced in running a tech company in um, Peru, in Chile and Mexico? And what would those differences be? So, I mean, there are certain differences for sure, but I think there are definitely way more similarities. And and that's been, it's very, very surprising to see, you know, how similar demand for tech talent is and, and, how similar are the challenges that our students face and, and so on. So overwhelmingly, I think they're, they're way more similar. And that's a great advantage of Latin America. You know, it's a shared language. It's a very similar culture. So, so that's why we really have that vision of, of, our, of this regional program. No? In terms of differences, there, there, there are obviously some things, you know, like the, what does it mean to be a a young girl from low-income backgrounds in Santiago is different to what that means in Arequipa, for example. It's quite different. So we do make some adjustments. But overall, I think it's it's been interesting to see how surprisingly similar things are. As you've scaled up, um, what have you seen in terms of um, how healthy the tech ecosystem is in Peru, in Chile and in Mexico? So I think in, in, in all of these places, it's growing, but it's definitely growing faster in, in some more than other. Like from the places we, we operate in Mexico, for sure, takes the lead. I mean, it's a much bigger economy. It has a much bigger presence of, of venture capital, you know. So it's it's definitely way more advanced. I would say Chile comes probably next and then Peru. It's it's a, a bit of a smaller economy that's just right, starting to ride the wave. But overall, I think it's it's definitely growing in more places, you know, and, and more and from different areas. Like on the one hand, big corporations are realizing that they need to undergo a digital transformation if they want to win in the digital economy. So many of our leading employers are suddenly like big banks and retailers. And on the other hand, more people are, are actually taking a bet to start a tech company of their own. And as the availability of capital grows and as we have more talent, 
then starting up something of your own also becomes more feasible. And that's also a, a leading source of employment for our students. In, in terms of the ecosystems, um, are there kind of facts and figures that um, you can share with us in terms of um, what sectors are growing the fastest and where you, you find most of the attention being focused on in terms of maybe VCs and talent as well? I mean, in Latin America, if you see it as a whole, uh, in terms of VCs, Brazil definitely takes the lead by a lot. Brazil is like an entire continent of, of itself, so that, that definitely takes the, the lead. Then Mexico comes next, and then there's some other, then I think Chile, you know, Colombia is also doing very interesting things. I think Peru would also join that, that, that group uh, very soon. And I mean, as, as people become more digital, you know, internet connectivity is growing in all these countries, mobile penetration, you know, smartphone penetration is growing. So people are starting to demand more more digital products. And I think that that's a, a big push. So I was doing some research into um, the, the tech space in Africa for an interview on to in the future. One thing I came across was somebody said that there are certain products and services which only make sense in a in a context for Africa, would you say that there are certain products as well and services which only make sense in Latin America because of maybe the language and the culture, for example? Uh, I don't know. I would have a, a broader perspective, I think. I would say that, yes, maybe there are certain products and services that only make sense in a particular region at a particular time, you know, at a particular time frame of economic development. But... I think overall that the changes as time go as time goes by, and I, and I do see many of the things that I already see in the states and and in Europe, they're they're gonna be here soon. I think that's a trend. So I, I would see it on a time time slot basis. Okay, from your viewpoint, what would you say is lacking in the Latin American tech ecosystem, and what would you say is being done very well? So I think there's a few elements. On the one hand, I think we need more talent, all sorts of talent. You know, we need more very prepared people that decide to launch a business. You, It's tough to really run a, run a startup. So we need the best people to say, instead of going for the corporate career, I'm going to go and try this out. You know, For that to be possible, you need the capital available. Uh, you need the connections available, you know, to the market. So there's a series of elements. And I think it's hard to point one out it's like the chicken and the egg you know which one goes first the entrepreneur or the capital and i think they, they both need to to move forward uh, together at the same time and in terms of um what is being done very well what would you say that is so what has been done very well so i mean it's interesting to see the role government are starting to play i don't know if i would say very well or not but i think they're doing very interesting <laughs> things and and that's a, mm. a an effort that's definitely worth noting for example, in terms of capital, the government in Chile, now the government in Peru, the government in Colombia, they've, they've been like one of the leaders in terms of providing risk capital for entrepreneurs and, and even go beyond that for funds. So I think that's something very, very uh, worth noticing, you know, they, they're pushing to move the ecosystem. Uh, and it's one element. It's They cannot do it alone and they need to do other things. You know, government, it's not only about proactively pushing this but it's also about reducing barriers for people to say i want to start a business and that's easy and and i can do it because there's adequate regulation 
So I think that's that's one thing that I would definitely point out. Okay, and are they putting that same emphasis on um, teaching the students in their in their schools how to code in the way that you're doing it, or are they still kind of having the out? dated curriculums and teaching stuff which maybe is not as relevant today as it was in the past yeah i think that that's a longer battle probably because i mean to get public education in technology to that top tier quality i think there are there are some great examples but they're definitely the exception and um what examples will those be oh i mean there's some very good public universities that have a very good computer science faculty for example but they're neat. They're very small, you know. They they're not definitely they're not gonna be the ones to by themselves cover all that unmet demand. So yeah, they're they're quite small and not necessarily very accessible. Well, thank you for that, uh, Mariana. Um, I appreciate your time, and um, I look forward to speaking again in the future. Great. Thank you so much for the invitation. <laughs>